We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, and Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Well, good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here this morning. It's great to be here. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series entitled Habits of Grace, Experiencing Christ Through the Spiritual Disciplines. Now, if you haven't been here the last month or so, the, the goal that we have been repeating over and over is this. So over the summer, we hope to experience Christ and his transforming grace as we meet with him through the regular habits of our life. Another way of saying that is if we love Jesus and we are compelled by his gospel that he has lived for us, that he has died for us, that he has been raised for us, that um, we will seek to, to find ways to meet with him. We are going to respond to that in worship of him and, and fix our eyes on him and meet with him in the regular habits of our day. We've been talking about this a lot. As we meet with him, as we experience him, we begin to be transformed by him. We begin to look more and more like him. Now, if you were here last week, you remember um, we talked about prayer. So we spent sp um, specifically last Sunday focusing on how Jesus taught us to pray. And what we're doing uh, this Sunday is following up and figuring out how Jesus taught us to fast. So fasting is kind of this companion to prayer. They go together, and we want to see um, how Jesus uh, teaches us about them. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start in Matthew 6. We're going to spend some time there. Then we'll flip to Matthew 9. So let's start with Matthew 6, um, verses 16 to 18, if you're, you're flipping through. Now, this part of Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. And so what Jesus is doing is he is instructing his disciples about um, himself and about how they ought to live their life. A lot of people refer to the Sermon on the Mount as Christianity 101, so to speak. So what Jesus is doing here is he is teaching us how we fast. That's the question that's trying to be answered in this text. How do we fast? So verse 16 starts this way. And when you fast. So we see the assumption here is that if we are followers of Jesus, we will fast. Jesus doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. And if you were here last Sunday... We saw that that was the exact same phrasing um, that Jesus used to talk about prayer. Jesus said, um, when you pray, right? Not if 
you pray. And so the running assumption here is that Jesus expects his disciples to be fasting and praying as a regular part of their life. When we look at the life of Jesus, we saw that he fasted. We also see that he teaches his disciples to fast. When we zoom out and look at the broader um, scope of the Bible, we see that fasting is an essential part of pursuing our relationship with God. In fact, this idea of fasting is repeated more times in the Bible than baptism. And so we, we see that it's repeated frequently, and because of that is an important thing for us to understand. I think it's especially important because in the American church, um, it has become one of the least practiced habits that we'll be talking about over the summer. Now, as far as I can tell, the vast majority of the church throughout history, they fasted. And as far as I can tell, the vast majority of the church continues to fast, except for this little sliver. There's a little segment of the church that doesn't fast or isn't known for that fasting. And that is the American church for the last hundred years or so. So just this very small um, part of the population. And I think because of that, when we start talking about fasting, I think it might invoke some fear, might invoke some misunderstanding. In fact, most of you probably didn't come this morning to hear about fasting. It probably doesn't interest you much. And so uh, what we need to do is we need to camp out here. We need to spend a little bit of time looking at some of the basics of fasting. Now, when Jesus started this conversation by saying, and when you fast, he could keep going on and and explain what he meant. But um, we don't necessarily have that framework. We don't necessarily fully understand what he means when he says, and when you fast, because of the the present culture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time here kind of going over some of the basics. Then we'll come back to verse 16, and we'll continue on. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a definition. So definition of fasting. Fasting is the God-given practice of abstaining from food or other activities to dedicate oneself to prayer. So you can see that up on the screen. I'll read it one more time. Fasting is the God-given practice of abstaining from food or other activities to dedicate oneself to prayer. So there's three really important key ideas here. We're going to unpack those, and then we'll get back to verse 16. So first key idea here for us this morning. To fast is to participate in a God-given practice. So what do I mean by that? Well, last Sunday we talked about how prayer is this God-given thing that's deep inside all of us. It's kind of this innate reflex that we see people uh, turn to God with, right? And that's kind of a, a universal thing. I believe that fasting is also an innate reflex. Now, you might not, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to convince you. Um, but I believe that fasting is this innate reflex. So where do I get that? Well, first, nearly every religion in the world fasts, right? Most major religions fast. And so I think what that tells us, I think it clues us into something that's going on. I think underneath that fasting, there is a common human experience that is pointing to the way that God made us. In fact, I believe that all of us fast more than we realize. Let me give you three quick examples here of of how we fast, maybe without realizing it. So example number one, we might fast when we mourn. So if you guys ever gone through something really weighty, you've mourned over something, what happens? Generally, if you're deeply mourning, 
you're not thinking about food, right? In fact, oftentimes we lose our appetite. We know that expression, I feel sick to my stomach. And so fasting is a way to kind of embody mourning or grief. Example number two. So when we fast, um, we might fast because of weighty situations that we find ourselves in. So maybe you're taking a trip to the emergency room, right? If you're rushing out to the emergency room, you are not going to stop by Taco Bell on the way there to get some food, right? Because that emergency room trip is more important. You might be hungry, but you can put it aside because there is something more important getting to the hospital. Um, You know, same thing with uh, having a child in the hospital. As you you go through the pregnancy process, you might be hungry, but there are more important things at hand, and so eating becomes secondary to the weightiness of this issue that is in front of us. And then example number three, we fast when we value things. Um, So we might put off a meal because we're watching a sports game or because we're out shopping or because we're spending important time with friends or maybe we're in an important meeting, but we're able to override that sense of hunger for something that we deem valuable or important in front of us. And so what does this tell us? What does all this tell us about fasting? Fasting, then, I think, is this God-given mechanism that we're given to say that this thing in front of me matters. This thing in front of me that I see, I value this thing, this thing is weighty, I need to pay attention to this thing. That is what this fasting mechanism does. And so that's kind of the first part of our our definition here. What about our, our second? So second, to fast is to abstain from food or other activities. So this is kind of the how of fasting here. So there's a number of types of fast we see in the Bible, a number of ways that fasting is approached. I'm just going to go over three quick ones here, um, just for the sake of simplicity. So fast number one. So the number one fast, the most common fast that we see in scripture is what's called a normal fast or a standard fast. Basically what happens here is you abstain from food, but you don't abstain from water. So you might abstain from food um, for a meal, or you might abstain longer. Now, the vast majority of, of the fasts in the Bible are like this. So we see Jesus. He's out in the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. What does he do? He doesn't eat, um, but he, he drinks water. David, he's mourning over his sick son who eventually dies. And during that mourning process, he, uh, eat, or he, he drinks water, but he does not eat. And so we, we see this fast recurring over and over in the scriptures. Now, I think it's important here to recognize that Jesus doesn't make any explicit mention to us for how long we should fast. Jesus doesn't say we have to fast 40 days like he did. So there's an invitation here. There's an invitation to ask the Holy Spirit, how long am I called to fast? Maybe it's one meal, um, but it could be a day, could be a week, could be a month, could be 40 days uh, like Jesus, but... Um, that is something that we kind of work out as we pray to God through. And I encourage you, if you haven't done it before, maybe start small and uh, work your way up. Okay, second type. Second type of fasting is partial fasting. So partial fasting is a type of fast where maybe less food is taken in or things that are particularly pleasurable um, we refrain from. And we see that here played out with Daniel. So Daniel has three friends 
Remember, they're taken into Babylonian captivity and kind of as an act of their worship to God, as an act of not submitting to the idolatry and excesses of the Babylonian captivity, they fast. It says they take in vegetables to eat and water to drink. So a little bit different. They, they are eating food, but it's unlimited type of diet. So you might approach fasting like this. You might um, have plainer foods to eat, like rice and vegetables. You might just take in liquids, uh, like protein shakes or juices. But the goal here is to still have some sense of hunger, some sense of desire that you are able to direct towards God. Now, here's the beauty of partial fasting. People who might have particularly strenuous jobs or people who might have health concerns like diabetes or pregnancies might consider how they can participate in this uh, lifestyle of, of fasting. Um, now, I do encourage you, if you do have like a health condition or something like that, make sure you do talk to your doctor and make sure that health, fasting is, is right for you. If you're not able to participate, this next one, this is one that we're all invited into. The last one is a lifestyle fast. So a lifestyle fast is where a certain habit in your life might be taking up too much time, might be taking up too much of your focus. It is drawing you away from God. And so what do you do? You put that to the side for a time to refocus your attention on God. So we see one example of this playing out here in 1 Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, we're told that for a time, we might abstain from sex within marriage um, to dedicate ourselves to prayer. So it reads like this, do not deprive one another, meaning don't withhold from one another, except perhaps by agreement, so it means it needs to be mutually agreed upon, and for a limited time, meaning not indefinitely, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And so there's this broader principle here. Fasting is is not just about abstaining from food, but we can abstain from the broader habits of our lives, the things that have taken up too much time or energy are focused from us so that we can dedicate our, um, our eyes and our hearts and our minds on God in prayer. Which leads us kind of to our last point before we get back into our text. The last point is we fast to turn to God in prayer. So here's how fasting works. This is kind of the mechanism behind it. Now, we don't want to be overly simplistic. I think it's kind of a complex thing. But fasting takes this vital physical habit, eating. Right? We all need to eat at some point or another, um, probably only second um, in terms of necessity to maybe breathing. Um, so it's very important. And what we do is we use that as leverage um, to push us forward with another vital spiritual habit, which is communion with God and prayer. See, fasting is not an end in itself. The goal is not to fast. It's not to, to accomplish something or to have some sort of feat. Um, the, the goal is um, that it is a means to an end, and that end is fellowship with God. And so what we do is we... Um, use this hunger. When we feel hunger, we use that to remind ourselves that we have a deeper spiritual hunger that needs to be met. It needs to be fed. And so we direct that towards God. Now, kind of coming back to our passage, the hypocrites, they are not using this fasting as leverage to remind them of a deeper spiritual truth. Here's what they're doing. They're taking this practice and they're using it as a leverage to get other people to look at them. 
right? So they are using it as a means to draw attention to themselves. Verse 16 says, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So if you remember, last week we talked about the hypocrite, right? Jesus defines hypocrite for us. A hypocrite is someone who seems outwardly to be doing all of the right things, but inwardly there's no true sense or motivation or desire to honor God. So there's a contradiction between what's being done and the internal desire. So the issue here is, Verse 16, these hypocrites, they're participating in fasting in such a way that their desire is not for God. It's, it's for others, right? Their motivation is to be seen by others, um, and that is, that is what they're after. That is their reward. So here's two ways that they're going about this. We're told here in our text. So first, during their fast, the hypocrites are making themselves look sad and gloomy. So the hypocrites are kind of playing it up, right? They're playing up the situation. Now, this reminds me of my daughter. Um, I uh, will, you know, be working, and I hear her running along upstairs, and she'll fall. You know, when she falls, she doesn't cry. She gets back up and, and runs. But what happens when daddy is there? Or what happens when mommy is there and we see it? Oh, man, it becomes a big thing, right? She starts rolling on the ground and crying and playing it up. She wants to have attention from me. She wants to have attention from my wife. That's what the hypocrites are doing, right? They're sad and they're gloomy. They're trying to draw attention to themselves and they're whining and they're complaining. Second... Um, they also are disfiguring their faces. So this is really strong language. Um, they're distorting themselves in a way. So I imagine it looks something like this. They're probably covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes. So they look filthy. They have tears streaming down their face. Um, if they've been praying for a while, they're not shaven. They haven't taken a shower. They are a sight to behold. That's intentional, right? They have made themselves a sight to behold so that other people would behold them. That is their goal. What's interesting is I think it's really important that we don't just point to the hypocrites. When we look at the Bible, we see that this is a trend over and over again of God's people. This is a big temptation. For example, in the book of Isaiah, it says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. So the indictment of God against the Israelites is, you're pursuing your fast for yourself. What's interesting is, when you read it in context, they're doing all of the right things. Um, but they, again, are doing it for their own pleasure and their own desire. We see another indictment in the book of Zechariah. The Lord inquires of Israel and says, Was it for me that you fasted? Are you doing all of this for me, or are you doing it for yourself? See, I, I think there is a, a great temptation when we approach fasting to make this about me, to make it about us, maybe even more so than all the other habits. And I think part of the reason why is when we deprive ourselves of food, what happens? I think we begin to get a clearer picture of who we really are when we do not have food. We begin to see our frailty and our weakness, our need to depend on others. We see our sin. We see all of the deep longings and desires well up in us. Fasting seems to have a way of magnifying all of that in us. And instead of turning all of that towards God, what do the hypocrites do? They kind of revel in that. 
Right? They revel in their, their broken state and they pursue it in such a way, again, that they draw attention to themselves instead of laying all of that at the feet of God. And here's what Jesus says in response to the way that the hypocrites are doing this. He says, verse 16, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. How sad is that? I mean, it's not an easy practice to pursue. Um, it, does, it definitely requires something of you, whether you're doing it legitimately or not. And they're throwing it away, right? God has given us this practice so that in seasons of weightiness, in seasons of struggle, in seasons of brokenness, in seasons of desperation when we desire and long to be with him and we feel distant, um, he has given us these means to direct all of that towards him and be satisfied. And the hypocrites don't want that. They throw that away, right? They, they miss the point of the fast because their satisfaction comes from others and not from God. And Jesus says that will be their reward. Their reward will be the attention of others, but they will miss out. And so the question for us is how do we make sure we don't miss out, right? How do we make sure that we enjoy the fellowship of God? Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head. You know, this is a way of kind of cleaning yourself and presenting yourself. And wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Now, the point here is not so much that we don't fast with each other. We don't have a communal goal to fast. We know that because there's all kinds of communal fasting in the Bible. This is a regular thing. But what Jesus is telling us here is that when we fast, we should do it in such a way that our hunger and our desires are oriented towards God himself, right? And not towards our own means. Which means we should wash ourselves, we should put on nice clothes, we should put on deodorant and brush our teeth and do all that stuff. We shouldn't be hangry towards others. You guys have heard that term probably, right? Um, we shouldn't be um, short with people. We should be loving um, in the midst of our fast so that we are not drawing attention to ourselves. So this is why we fast, right? We fast because we want to see our physical hunger point us to a deeper hunger that can be satisfied in God. And that is what our reward is. We see in verse 18, and your father who sees in secret will reward. You see our reward is God himself. We are satisfied with God. So we've kind of covered this first passage here, Matthew 6. It tells us primarily how we should fast. Now, what about why we fast? If you want to flip over to Matthew 9, we're going to pick up there in verse 14. So again, we're trying to answer this question, why do we fast? So verse 14 says this, then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, here's what's going on. We have John, uh, the Baptist disciples, and they come up to Jesus, and they ask him why he doesn't seem to fast, why his disciples don't seem to fast. Now, apparently, this was a common perception of Jesus. Um, Jesus was, for whatever reason, not um, known as a faster. Um, and we actually see this when Jesus talks about himself, right? Jesus talks about himself in Luke like this, and he's kind of reiterating the common perception of him. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So the public perception was 
John the Baptist fasts, he has a demon, and then we see here Jesus, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus is seen as someone who fasts and someone who celebrates. So I think this clues us into something here about how we should fast in light of Jesus. So outside of Jesus' 40-day fast, again, he wasn't really known as a faster, and neither were his Disciples. Now, part of that might be we just learned in Matthew 6 that Jesus told his disciples primarily to, pr- um, to, to pray and fast in a way that was not drawing attention to themselves. But I think there's a little bit more. I think it was because Jesus was such a feaster. He was a celebrator. We see him time and time again celebrating at parties with tax collectors and sinners. And so what's going on is John the Baptist and his followers are kind of perplexed by this. Why has the Messiah, the answer to all of Israel's questions and cries and pleas, come in such a way that he has broken tradition? He's not fasting like God's people. He's not fasting like John the Baptist and his disciples. He's not fasting like the Pharisees. Why is that? What's going on here? Jesus gives us our answer in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? That's a really interesting way to ask why you don't fast, right? Uh, kind of an indirect way. Um, but here's what Jesus is getting at. So we'll, we'll follow the logic. Jesus is saying that before he came, there was something to mourn about. There was something deep worth mourning about, right? We, we see that God's people for centuries are crying and mourning. They want God to fulfill all of the promises that he said he would. They're waiting for God to act, and so they're responding to God in fasting and in prayer, right? They are desperate. But now that Jesus is come, Jesus is saying that something has changed. Jesus is saying there was a time for mourning, and now that he is here, there is no longer a need to mourn. Do you realize what Jesus is saying about himself? He is saying that all of those cries, all of the hunger pains, all of the dissatisfaction that God's people have directed towards him have been answered in Jesus, in his presence here. Jesus is saying, you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you hunger and thirst for the promises of God to be fulfilled. I'm here, I'm it. That's what Jesus is saying to his people. What a statement that is to say that he embodies the fulfillment of all of these longings of people of Israel and all of the promises of God. Now, when we look a little bit more closely, we see that there's one particular aspect of this sense of longing um, that is being fulfilled in our, our passage. And it's packed in this idea of bridegroom. So bridegroom is just a formalized way of saying groom, as in a, a man who is about to be married. And so this is what this passage is doing. Jesus is trying to draw on some really deep imagery from the Old Testament, and he imagines that all of this imagery and the weightiness of this will be triggered when we read this. And so um, we're going to unpack a little bit of this so we can really see what Jesus is getting at here. So throughout the Old Testament, the God of Israel was as a husband to Israel, and Israel was called to be as a wife to God. So, for example, we see in Isaiah, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And so we see God seeing himself as a husband to his his people. 
And so we're to understand that there is this ongoing marital relationship between God and Israel. Now the question is, what is the basis for that relationship? What is the basis for that marital um, relationship? Did that just kind of develop over time? I I think there um, is a little bit more clarity on that. The book of Ezekiel says this. This is what God says directly to Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And so we see um, that Israel has come of age and is ready to be married. And the passage goes on. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. So Israel, if you follow along in the passage, you can see that they are helpless, right? They um, do not have a place for themselves. They are in great need. And what does God come in and do? He comes and provides for them. And it goes on, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And so the, bar- the basis of this marital relationship is the covenant relationship that God has made with Israel. God has come and provided for Israel, protected Israel, and now has established this, this marital relationship with them through covenant. See, this is the basis for Israel being a wife and God being a husband. God was to be the God of Israel and they were to be his people. But what happens? As we read through the scriptures, we begin to see a trend, right? We see that Israel breaks this covenant. Israel breaks covenant with God. Israel disobeys God's commands. Israel begins to worship foreign gods. Israel begins to submit itself to foreign kings. Israel begins to trample upon the covenant it swore to uphold. And in turn, Israel becomes an unfaithful wife to God. And just so we see the gravity of this, when we look at the Old Testament law, um, the consequences of being an unfaithful uh, unfaithful wife was, was death, right? Unfaithful wives were put to death. And that was Israel's due. Israel was adulterous to God and was to be uh, put to death. And so when we see John the Baptist here, he's mourning and he's fasting. He's mourning because of the brokenness of God's people. He's mourning because of the unfaithfulness and the infidelity And he is pleading, he's crying out that God would be faithful even though his people were not. That is what they are hoping for. Israel had broken the marriage covenant with God and they are begging that God would in some way be faithful and continue to uphold it. That is where Israel is at and that is why John the Baptist and his followers are weeping. And I think if we really begin to reflect on our life, we realize Israel's not alone. Right? All of us have become spiritual um, adulterers. All of us have turned away from God in our idolatries and our adulteries. We have been unfaithful to our Creator. And like Israel, I think us too, we deserve this death sentence. Right? We have disobeyed God and deserve His judgment. But praise God, this is not where it ends, Right? Because we are unfaithful, that much is true. But God decides to be faithful in light of all of our unfaithfulness. God doesn't leave us here. Instead, he makes a promise. He makes a promise to Israel 
um, as they are kind of waiting in their, their suffering. And he says this in the book of Hosea, and I will betroth you to me forever, meaning I will, I will marry you. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. See, God promises that he will once again remarry his people even though they have abandoned him. He will marry them, and this marriage will be eternal, right? It will be marked by fidelity and faithfulness. This marriage will be unbroken. And so when Jesus enters in and he says, I am the bridegroom, what is he saying? He's saying, I have come to fulfill this promise. You were unfaithful, but I have come to be faithful. I have come to reestablish this covenant. And how does he do it? Well, we were an unfaithful wife, but what does Jesus do? He comes and he dies as a faithful husband for his unfaithful wife. Isn't that crazy? Think that, that we cheat on God and God comes and bears the penalty of that as our faithful husband? See, Jesus is treated as the unfaithful one. Jesus is the one who goes to the cross, and he is treated as the adulterer that we are. He stands in our place and takes that wrath and punishment upon himself. And in this process, he establishes a greater covenant. He establishes this new covenant that we rest on. This is our eternal marriage covenant with God. And so when we respond this morning, this is what we're being called to respond too. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, be encouraged this morning. Be encouraged that you are his bride, that he has come and he has washed you. He has made you clean. He has washed you from all impurities, and now you are his spotless bride. Trust in that. And if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, if you're not following Jesus, see this is an invitation Right? This is an invitation for you to be a part of his bride. This is an invitation for you to see all of your iniquities, all of your infidelities washed away, to stand pure and presented before God and Christ. That is the invitation this morning. These are beautiful truths that we see here packed into this idea of bridegroom. And so the question for us is, what does all this have to do with fasting? <laughs> so if we look at, at verse 15, we see how it finishes. It says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So many of us know how the story ends, right? We know that Jesus is not with his disciples forever. He is taken away. We see that language in our passage in verse 15. And when he's taken away, he's taken away to the cross, right, where he pays our penalty and, and receives the wrath of God. And then after that, we see that um, Jesus is buried, he resurrects, and he ascends. And so we learn that Jesus goes, we learn in Scripture that Jesus goes and he goes to prepare a place for us. He goes to prepare a place for the Father. And so we're kind of in this intermediate state. He's preparing a place for us, and he's not physically present with us. And so we see in our passage, this is the place that we are called to fast. Jesus has been taken away, and then it says, and then they will fast. And so here we are. Now, what is our fasting like? Well, we're not mourning like John the Baptist did, right? We're not mourning because we have seen him. 
We have seen him come and fulfill all of the promises of God. We have seen him come and be faithful. We have seen him come lay down his life for us and purchase us as his bride. We have seen him make us pure and clean. And yet, we do mourn. Right? We do mourn because Jesus is not present with us. We have this deep longing, this deep anticipation to meet with him again. So have you ever spent a long time away from, from someone you love? That's kind of what this mourning is like. See, we are mourning in his absence, but we are eagerly counting down those days until he returns. And we are looking towards him with our appetites and desires and waiting for him to once come back to us. So that's how we should think of fasting in light of what Jesus has done, in light of the, the work that he has done on the cross. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with one encouragement. This encouragement comes from John Piper. Um, he wrote a book on fasting, which is on your homework on the back, if you want to read a little bit more in detail. But this is what he says about the practice of fasting. The more deeply you walk with Christ, the hungrier you get for Christ. The more homesick you get for heaven, the more you want all the fullness of God. The more you want to be done with sin, the more you want the bridegroom to come again. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, right? Food and sex and social media and hobbies and all of the rest to the neglect of God. It says your, your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. This is an appetite. There is an appetite for God and it can be awakened. And so that is our encouragement this week. I want to encourage you that as we go about our week, that we should take all of our appetites, all of the things that we desire, and lay them at the feet of Jesus. And in the process, I pray that we would have a deeper um, longing for Jesus, that we would have deeper desires and deeper appetites for him. And then as we turn to him in prayer, as we have those appetites, as we have those longings, my prayer would be that we would find deep satisfaction, deep fulfillment and him, we would know he is the answers, uh, the answer to all of our longing. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.